Well, I want to thank you all for, for coming here this, this afternoon. My name is Bob Rose. I'm an executive vice president of Thomson Reuters, and we're happy to be one of the sponsors today for this luncheon. You know, it wasn't long ago that I was doing an introduction not unlike this, uh, just two or three minutes, very brief. And after the presentation was over at the end of the luncheon, I was approached by a, a, a woman. She was kind of running through the crowd to kind of come up to me, and she said, you know, I really wanted to meet you. She says, I really thought your presentation, and remember this was only a brief introduction, was super superfluous. And, 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 I, and I looked at her, and I wasn't quite sure kind of what to make of it, but she was smiling and radiating, and so I nodded, and I said, thank you very much. And she said, well, have you, have you ever thought about publishing? Well, you know, this was a, a two-minute introduction, and I wasn't quite sure what, where she was going with this, so I just kind of said, no, I really hadn't. I said, perhaps posthumously. She says, well, I really hope to see it soon. Uh, the issue before us today is, is an important one, uh, one that I have worked on uh, for many years uh, with, with uh, Admiral McConnell. Uh, the growing global interconnectivity, interdependence, and interaction has created systemic risks and strategic vulnerabilities to our country. Whereas past technological advances resulted in laws, regulations, and policies aimed at protecting citizens from the technological advances. Such developments have yet to occur in the digital age. Today, the country is at great risk of espionage, sabotage, and attack from criminals, nation states, and extremist groups. In fact, there are many people who believe that the cyber threat is the most significant threat currently facing our nation. Today, we have two people, uh, Jim Fallows, uh, who will be moderating today's discussion, whose background was or is uh, a former White House speechwriter under President Carter, who has lived in China for years and received an Emmy nomination for one of his books about doing business in China. Okay, currently with the Atlantic Magazine as a renowned writer. Our other guest is Admiral Mike McConnell, career intelligence officer, uh, rising to the rank of Admiral, served on the Joint Chiefs of Staff as the intelligence officer under General Powell during Desert Shield and Desert Storm, was director of the National Security Agency, was uh, President Bush's Director of National Intelligence, providing briefings to President Bush every day on what was going on. And today, and is continuing to be involved in these discussions, uh, Mike is currently uh, a Senior Vice President of Booz Allen in charge of their intelligence business. So it really is a great honor uh, for me, for Thomson Reuters, to sponsor this luncheon, to have such distinguished gentlemen present the cyber threat issue to you today. Mike, Jim, Great. thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bob. Thanks to Thompson Reuters. Thanks to all of you for coming today, and thanks for, to, uh, to the Aspen Ideas Festival. Uh, thanks to Admiral McConnell. All of us here who have uh, many children, we know, of course, it's an impossible question, who is your favorite child? We love them all. So, too, with Aspen Ideas Festival's sessions. They're all our favorites. They're all excellent. 
This is the one that if I had to choose a favorite, however, it's the one I've been looking forward to because I think we have the opportunity to have in a condensed period of time the person ideally positioned to explain a crucial issue to us. You know about Admiral McConnell's background as Director of National Intelligence, as head of the National Security Agency. There's one bit of inside baseball you can establish for us. I've heard that if you work at the National Security Agency, you never call it the. You have to say at National Security Agency at NSA. That's right, correct? That's correct. Just so NSA. now you know. You've gained some useful knowledge <laughs> you can impress people from, from now on. Jim, what? I have to answer the question about favorite grandchild. He, he rushed into my room and said, Granddad, make a sound like a frog. And I said, why, son? He said, because we've been talking to Grandma, and when she says, when you croak, she's taking us all to Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> Did, did that make him most or least favorite? That made him the most. That made him the most. <laughs> well, pass this on also. The, the second useful thing you've learned today. Uh, also something, in your copious spare time after this session, you might want to go to the website of a group called Intelligence Squared and check out a debate that Admiral McConnell was in about a month ago on essentially whether the cyber uh, war threat had been hyped up. And you were on the team arguing that it had not been overhyped, and you won, you swung most of the, uh, the undecideds in your direction. So it was a uh, formidable performance. So with that as a theme, we don't have a lot of time today. And so my ambition, while allowing time for questions, is to go through some of the fundamentals here. All of us have heard about the cyber threat, cyber war issue. But I think few of us are confident about what it actually means, what we should worry about, what we should dismiss, what we should think is exaggerated, what is real. And that's the kind of sequence we'd like to, to, to go through. So let me start by asking you, just in basic terms, what is the threat we're talking about? If you had to rank things to worry about, what would they be? What does the cyber threat mean? Okay, thanks, Jim. Uh, um, let me start by just describing the net. And when I say net, I would like for you to think about it as a global enterprise. You can move from one side of the world to the other side of the world in milliseconds. So just an interesting fact from China to New York is about 300 milliseconds. So when you start to appreciate it as global, you can be at any place on the, on the globe and have access to your benefit, conduct business to your benefit, to exchange um, uh, something of value or commerce or whatever, but you also, from that remote location, could have access to do harm. And, and that's the issue that we have uh, attempted to identify is how do we continue to reap the benefits of this global enterprise that we know is the information technology revolution, and what is the proper balance of the roles and missions of government and the private sector in causing it to be secure enough that we can conduct the nation's business, in fact, the globe's business, in a safe and secure manner. And, and let me just put, a, put a, uh, a point on it that will help people grasp the, the gravity of this. Uh, the world basically cannot function without banking. Now, you, you think about, all right, that's a lot of uh, dollars that flow around the world, and, and size it for me. The economy of the United States is $14 trillion a year, thereabouts. There are two banks in New York City that move $7 trillion a day. There's nothing backing up that currency. There's no gold, not even printed dollar bills. If you took, added up all the printed dollars and the change, it's about 2 or 3% of the, of the value. So where is it? It's stored 
in a computer system or computer systems that allow the, the world to exchange value and currency and reconcile in milliseconds. And so that's, that's the benefit, and that now has introduced a level of vulnerability. And it repeats in areas like electric power or transportation or all the things that everyone in this room depends upon. There's some way you're benefited by or dependent upon this thing we refer to as the internet. So let me take what you mentioned last about transportation, electric grids, things like that, the ways all of which are dependent not simply on their physical entities but the information systems that, that run them because that brings us to one of the most contested issues in this whole field, uh, which is whether there, whether there is such a thing as cyber warfare, is it underway now? And, and here would be the analogy. You could make the point that Theoretically, somebody from China, somebody from Russia, somebody from a non-state group could disable an electric grid or a, uh, a highway system. You could also make the analogy that the Russians could send nuclear weapons at us now, and so could the Chinese, and so could the Pakistanis. That doesn't mean we're at war right now with the Russians. Does the existence of these theoretical threats mean we are at war? How should we think about this term, cyber war? Well, many of us that are concerned about this uh, choose terms to try to get attention or focus and so on. And I myself have used the term cyber war. Uh, and if I'd had until this time to think about it, I probably would have selected a different word. I might have said <laughs> cyber conflict. Um, uh, it's, a character, it's a fact of history and a characteristic of, of mankind that if there is conflict, it is conducted with the instruments at hand. So whether it's fighting with spears or, or the crossbow or, or farm instruments or whatever it is, that's the, that's the nature of conflict. And so what we're facing now is a situation where someone who wishes you harm or wishes, maybe has a different worldview has the capacity to, in, to inflict catastrophic damage with a relatively small investment. So are we at cyber war, meaning that there's some group out there attacking us in the, in the manner of warfare in the way it's defined in a legalistic sense? I would say no. Are there those out there that have a different worldview that would like to change the world order? I, I think everybody here would agree that there are such groups, and you can you know, pick your, your extremist group. So those of us that have talked about this issue have the benefit of, of being around it, understanding it, understanding it from a variety of points of view. And the argument that we're attempting to make is, let's not wait till the crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, if you think about us as a nation, our wonderful democracy, the checks and balances, and we represent the varied interests and so on, we will talk about a problem forever, but we often don't take the step necessary to address the problem. But wait till there's a crisis, and then we get a huge overreaction. So why can't we have this debate among all the parties to get the framing right, get the law right, and get the international relationships that will have to flow out of this uh, adjusted in a way that we are partners in a global enterprise that we all depend on and should be secure. And I'd like to come in a minute back to some of those uh, constructive suggestions you have of, of international partnerships. Let me just ask a further clarifying point on this war concept, because it does get so much attention. And this, this is in sort of two halves. If you think of actual states with which the U.S. might conceivably go to, to war, whether, you know, choose your state, whether it's China or somebody else, 
And if there were circumstances where they were trying to affect our cyber structure, presumably we already would be doing lots of other things to each other, mm-hmm. too. There'd be other sorts of, of, of war. So, so is that assumption correct? The second part is for the non-state groups that we worry about constantly, is there evidence that they are trying this kind of actual physical warfare uh, against electric grids or other things? There, um, I don't remember the exact number, some 200-odd nation states in the world. And uh, about 140, 150 of them have a relatively sophisticated cyber exploitation capability. Now, I'll use three terms, exploitation, attack, and defense. And I want to separate those three terms because they often are confused. If you're exploiting, that means that you're reading the other guy's mail. You want to know his secrets. You want to know the capabilities of his military equipment. You want to know what the intentions are. So you're following, in an intelligence sense, what are the capabilities and intentions of a, of a potential adversary? Attack means that you would use cyber means to achieve an objective. Uh, if we have, we're mad at somebody and we're going to uh, go land troops, we don't want to turn off the air defense yeah. or cause uh, the lights to go out. Well, that would think of that as, as an attack. Defense is the more challenging issue because you have to defend all potential vulnerable spots. Now, every nation state that out there that is doing contingency planning, that has military forces, that has a strategy for um, uh, being successful in any kind of a a small-scale or large-scale conflict, is thinking about and is planning for cyber conflict. Now, you use China as an example. Let's let's suppose that we had some disagreement with China over something like Taiwan. Uh, Suppose that China invaded Taiwan. What would be our reaction? What would, what would be the policy of the United States. If the policy decisions led to conflict, there is no doubt in my mind that both sides would be using cyber to achieve wartime ob- objectives. Um, and that could be engagement of tactical forces at the front line. It could be an attack on surveillance capability so you understand the battle space. It could be attack on command and control or it could cause something to wobble back in the home state to cause uncertainty and fear. It, it could cause the lights to go out. There are lots of things that, that when, you, when, I, when you pick it up the way I tried to introduce it, one global net and from any remote yeah. point you can touch another point, uh, if you are sophisticated and you have a very sophisticated exploitation capability, that's why I use the three different words, to exploit means you can be successful with no fingerprints. So if you are a successful exploiter, then by definition, you have the capability for successful attack, and you should have the capability for better defense. And that's the debate space that we're in right now about what's, what are the right policy frameworks and what's the right legal framework and the international agreements that we might establish uh, to secure this space. And just one third, final thing on this point, if the Chinese were having this discussion in their uh, Dalian Ideas Festival or, or whatever, they would, they would recognize that the U.S. is not without resources in this realm, too, right? They would be... Uh... Yes, the U.S. is not without resources. <laughs> um, part, of, uh, part of the reason I got so focused on this issue, I had the privilege and pleasure of leading the National Security Agency um, and starting in 1992. And if you recall, several things were happening in 1992. The Cold War was over. There were two operative words in Washington, D.C., peace, dividend. We had a new administration, 
And this thing called internet, any, anybody out there heard of this internet thing? It, it was about to explode and create incredible wealth for many of the folks in this room. Uh, well, I was sitting there thinking of relevance. I have an institution whose roots go back to World War II where we were successful in reading Nazi Germany's codes and Japanese codes, breaking their, opening their mail, their secrets, and the historians will debate whether we shortened the war by 18 months or two years. So the fact of being able to understand the other side's intentions in global conflict was very, very important. So the leadership of the nation post-World War II decided this code-breaking thing is important. And so we're going to create an agency and we're going to institutionalize it. That was the National Security Agency. And I'm its new director in 1992. Peace dividend. Um, Cold War's over. And the Internet's exploding. Now, here's the way I, it was explained to me in those days. Most of the exploitation throughout World War II and Cold War was wireless. And there are only two kinds of communications, wireless and wire. And we made most of our hay on wireless. Well, when I walked in, one of the young engineers said, Mr. Director, before you leave here, 90% of the world's communications will be inside a glass pipe. So if you now, the new, new guy for an agency who's being challenged, and the question is relevance, how must you start to change the institution? And it's, it was a global institution. So just to think about exploitation in cyberspace, think wired, and I've had two startling um, conclusions after we started down that path. The first was, this is real easy. <laughs> it's really easy. And the second, because the other side of National Security Agency in addition to code breaking, is they're responsible for code making. And when you start to think about code making as the defender, the protector, I said, oh my God, we're the most connected. We're the most dependent. The United States at that point in time was the most vulnerable. I would submit that we still are the most vulnerable, although it's starting to change as as the, the process uh, propagates around the world. But there is huge vulnerabilities for the country. And that was a realization in the early 90s, and I just made it a passion of mine to try to uh, share an insight and make a case for, uh, we need to think this through because it's, it's worthy of a digital age, Madison, Jefferson, and Adams to have this debate because it's such a fundamental change. And your article on all the details of what you found and how to do this will be in the Atlantic next month, right? <laughs> We've been waiting to, to, to get it. Just to clarify one point of what you just said, you said the U.S. is the most vulnerable. That's in the same way we're the most vulnerable to terrorism, all sorts, because we're the most open society. Is open society. similar logic? That's correct. Think of, think of um, the Internet as anonymity for billions of people who can touch you. And not all of them have your best interest at heart. And some groups of them don't even like the way we live or the current world order. And they want to change it. And that's what I'm worried about. Because the cost of entry is so low if you have the technical sophistication. And what I would highlight in the, I remember the job I just left, I focused very intently on terrorist groups and what they're doing and planning and so on. And there's an intent 
to have 9-11s on an order of magnitude greater level in this country, and they're pursuing chemical, biological, and nuclear technology, and they're talking about cyber. And when they talk about cyber, it makes me worry because that would be the easiest to do. Let me have one more threat-related question before getting to the sort of Federalist Papers issue, Federalist Papers for the, uh, the, the cyber age. Could you please scale for us on two different axes? One is kinds of threat, Terror terrorism, commercial espionage, governmental espionage. The other is by, by source, you know, China, Russia, non-state group, et cetera. How should we think about the hierarchy on each of those axes? Uh, let me just start with what most people use in their lexicon to talk about it. They say hacking. And to me, hacking is a nuisance. Uh, it's pain. It's a nuisance. But you can clean it up and move on. Uh, the next most significant is, is crime. And that's becoming more and more significant for major, major activity. Uh, we have laws and, and a process for dealing with crime. And, and it's, not, it's something I worry about, it, but I don't worry about it threatening us as a nation state. Nation state threats. There is no doubt in my mind that if we have, if somebody's mad at us, they can do uh, catastrophic damage. However, I would add that most nation states would be deterred. We, we often talk about China as an adversary. I, I tend to think of China as a competitor. We're, we're in competition to do things. We need each other. Um, the Chinese need markets, and they need access to raw materials, and they need stable currency. When you look at their holdings, of United States bonds and notes and as a market, it's not in their self-interest. So while they may have some ability, I think there's an inherent deterrent built into that. The group that I worry about that is not deterred, someone who wants to achieve destruction of the United States or the world order, uh, that's who I worry about, although I would quickly point out I don't believe they have the technical sophistication today. But the one thing I would highlight is when you look back at some of the, uh, the attacks, the, the bombs and the killing of people, uh, oftentimes those were very educated people. I think it was summer 2008, the attack, uh, the, actually the attacks failed, but there were two medical doctors that attempted to carry out those attacks. So how much time is it until we have someone who's so radicalized that has a set of skills in computer science or uh, electrical engineering and often I find people that have inherent skills and understanding of how to maneuver through this space without formal training. So if we get the, those with the inherent skills and we get those with formal training and they have a radicalized view, I think uh, the possibility of damage is significant. Yeah. You've talked several times already today and frequently in your public presentations over the past year or so about the need, as you say, to sort of reframe a national and international consensus on how to think about the the, the benefits and the vulnerabilities of a uh, internet-connected world. Tell us a little bit about the big issues you think need to be resolved, and also what will happen if these are resolved the right way? Mm -hmm. What will the result be? If they're result not resolved the right way, what will the result be? Fortunately, in a little group I associated with, one of our guys is a historian, and, uh, and we asked him to do some thinking about this. And what we said, is this, is this new? Is this, uh, we ever faced this situation? Uh, before and he did some fascinating research and went back in time and started the Industrial Revolution. And there's some interesting personalities that have written and talked about this and discovery and so on. Some of the names you'll hear are a Russian statistician named Kondratiev. You can Google him and that'll tell you that story. 
Uh, the other is the economist uh, Schumpeter, I think, who wrote about it uh, from Harvard in the, in the early 40s. And then uh, 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 Carletta Perez, I think it is, Brata, the, the Argentine uh, economist. Basically what it says, there's a, there's a cycle. Uh, the cycle is 50 years in length. It could be 46, it could be 56, but it's about 50 years. And what happens is the, the new technology uh, creates new business. And the new business benefits society. And we all have some level of benefit. But someone, some get such significant gain, they start to abuse it. And at that point, the, the government's role starts to change. The government then actually has a role. Now, the easiest for Americans to understand would be railroads. Um, the United States has been the largest economy in the world since 1880. And that was largely driven by the fact that the Industrial Revolutions, which started in Great Britain, moved to the United States. We had uh, an entrepreneurial culture and, and uh, a, a spirit, and we connected border to border with these train systems. And we were enjoying the fruits of that until monopolistic behavior of the train uh, holder, the, uh, the uh, train industry, start to do harm to society. So the reaction from government was antitrust legislation. Well, that cycle has repeated itself every 50 years since the Industrial Revolution. Another easy one, easy one for us to understand. How many people in here remember Ralph Nader's book, Unsafe at Any Speed, and the debate over putting seatbelts in cars? Yeah. Now, when I was a youngster, the thing I wanted most in life was to drive an automobile. And I will never forget these statistics. My dad took me to the highway department, a big old guy walking around with wrecked cars and shoes. Shoes were people who died on the highway. And he gave me these numbers. He said, son, we have 150 million people in this country and 60,000 died on the highway this year. Well, this is still a terrible number, but there are 300 million of us now, and 30,000 people die on the highways. Remember the debate about putting seatbelts in, interference with free enterprise, or airbags, or interstate highway system? So we're, we're approaching the point now with this informa information technology. It touches all of us at such a significant level. We're all so dependent. There's going to have to be a partnership between government and the private sector. How do we balance this out? And what's the United States' role in leading the, the world to the right set of solution space? That is a pretty tall order. And, and no one, at least from my observation, no one's picked it up at that level. We talk, we'll argue about pieces. We'll argue about free enterprise. We'll argue about the clouds coming, we, the independence of the, of the the World Wide Web or the, the, the uh, World Wild Web, I would call it sometimes. <laughs> and all those things are important for anonymity and political protest and so on. But if you're going to do business with your bank or your doctor or your insurance company, or if you're going to transfer $100 billion, don't you want the basic features of security, which would be authentication, data integrity, non-repeat? It's sort of the feature. If you're in the security business, those are the things that you would highlight so that's the debate we have to have. And I think it's going to take leadership from business. It's going to take leadership from the White House. And it'll take a partnership with the Congress. Because I can guarantee you, the organization of Congress, where committee chairmen hold oversight and sway over some slice, our government is divided by authorities that are accomplished with annual appropriation and authorization. And the various pieces that I mentioned, exploit, attack, and defend, are all aligned in different agencies across the government. 
with different oversight committees, with different appropriators. So getting that harmonized is an is a incredible challenge. I have two, two or three more questions I want to ask, and then I'm going to be inviting questions for, from, from the audience. Let me ask again, following about the, the international understanding that you're recommending. What should the U.S., what's the most effective way the U.S. should try to get international consensus on this? If you were in charge of U.S. policy, what would the U.S. now do? And if the U.S. is not able to get international consensus, what should it do just on its own? Well, first of all, I, I think I'd use two examples. Uh, Post-World War II, Bretton Woods, we sat down with the winners, and we decided about how the world was going to be shaped. Uh, we can't quite accomplish that now, but there's another little example out there called ICIO, and I, I apologize, I don't know exactly how it expands, but it's the agreement, the worldwide agreement, for flying across national borders. It took us 20 years to hammer out that agreement. But if you are going to fly an airplane with passengers across sovereign borders, you've agreed to certain principles, uh, the language you speak, the filing a flight plan, the safety of the airplane. So there's, a, there's an international agreement that crossed borders of people who disagreed with each other in a, in a philosophical context, but we found a way to do that. I would argue in the, in the spirit of nation states having benefits for their citizens, a secure means of communication is then their self-interest. So I think the United States, since we created most of this technology, and it's, it's now starting to migrate, it's now incumbent upon us to step up and take a leadership role to engage the world, uh, political leaders and business leaders, to lay out a game plan for making it uh, more secure, pardon me, more secure. And to follow up on that before asking you about what we do if we can't get agreement, as you look at the correlation of forces internationally, and you see the Chinese in particular having their own separate internet domain for political and economic reasons, and some similar trends elsewhere, what's the leverage we have to argue to a lot of these other very large and, and technologically powerful nations that it's worth having this kind of uh, equivalent to an aviation agreement? Primarily self-interest. Mm -hmm. um, now, some would argue that the, the Chinese, as you mentioned, are are, they've tried to screen it and they're separate and so on, but if you're connected, you're connected. Remember the business I was in. So um, <laughs> if um, many people think, well, I, I'm different. I have a, I have a independent net or I'm, I'm not. If, often I, I, I smile when people say, well, wait a minute, I have a leased line. A, a leased line means you have an agreement with a service provider for a restoral priority. Now that's, that priority may be nine, 99.99999, I think they, they achieved 959s is their goal. But you don't have a physical line. If you're sending a transaction from New York to, to Los Angeles, you have no idea if it goes via Toronto or New Orleans. It is going the path of least resistance. When you get inside and understand the technology, the communications um, that you want to communicate is broken into packets. Think of it as a swarm of bees moving across the path of least resistance. Why? To reduce the cost and ensure delivery. So you, you have a, a service, you don't have a leased line. So it's, it's having people understand the phenomena that we have to deal with. And, and on, on that point, I have always understood from my time in China that, we're, that while what you say is true of the world in general, there are only three access points where things come into China. Their internet was de designed the opposite way from ours to That's be controllable. True. So, That's true. So, uh, so, and if we can't get consensus, what do we do then to optimize our interests? There are a number of models that will evolve, and uh, one of them is um, a model like China's. And that's, that in the long term, it's not in China's interest, not in the United States' interest. 
uh, we are one uh, globalized economy. And uh, being an economics major from many, many years ago when I went off to, to college, I'll, I'll never forget Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, when he explained the fundamental concept of uh, a free market where everyone is operating in their own self-interest gets raises the grave in common good, uh, where, you, where you focus on what you do best. And if the Chinese can understand it from that point of view, as the Russians, as and it's uh, all nation states, then we all will benefit in a significant way. Good. Here's my last question, so please look for a microphone to, pre to prepare yours. One of the, the emerging big trade-offs and conflicts in the whole internet world, not just in security, but involving Facebook and the rest, is the privacy uh, trade-off mm -hmm. of how commercial interests, national interests of the kind you're discussing, it can be balanced against individual uh, privacy, how do you think this balance will be set out? What's your advice on this I, front? I believe that we will have an internet much like we know it today, where there is anonymity. Uh, it will allow you to surf or blog or do whatever you choose to do. Uh, the White House has just introduced something they're referring to as uh, trusted, uh, uh, the acronym is TIC. It's a White House website released the 25th of this month, of, of, of June, sorry. Uh, that talks about credentialed services. So third party issues you a credential. It's in your self-interest to have such a credential so that you can authenticate yourself as who you are to someone you want to do business with, a bank or a doctor or whatever. It may be as simple as the credential says you're over 21. It may be everything you need to know about a person in the context of a medical record. So. So that's a choice. As a, as a citizen, I can opt to the wild, wild web and be anonymous, or I can opt to a secure path to do business with my doctor or whoever I choose to do business with where I have some authentication process. Now, the military is riding the same infrastructure that we've, I've been describing. They have a, something called .mil. They, they established a domain, and it has certain requirements, and they can control that. The government, U.S. government, has decided to uh, secure .gov. There's space in between those that I think is something we have to address. Yeah. It's, it's from being anonymous the way we choose to be on the internet today to how do we do the nation's transactions when a mistake or a problem affects all of us. That's the space we have to secure. Okay, thank you. Uh, who has, yes, uh, sir, in the blue, Sure, and so the microphones are roving around. Yes, and please identify yourself and give your question. Stephen Kaufman, Abram McConnell, you've addressed mostly business issues. I'd like to take you back to your military career and ask you something affecting the military. Um, it's my understanding that the conflict between Russia and Georgia was over with before it began because of some cyber techniques the Russians use to paralyze uh, the Georgians' communications and uh, ability to act. Um, was that a glimpse? D did we learn anything about cyber war from that experience, the way people in the 1940s had a glimpse from the Spanish Civil War uh, of what war was about to be like? And because our military is probably the most electronic in its fundamental 
means of uh, delivering its, uh, its force, are we the most vulnerable? We learned a great deal from that, and it, quite frankly, it was a very simple um, act on the part of, of the Russians, and they would deny having done it as a nation state, but the, the facts of what happened is uh, there was some, some decision was made with regard to a, a dust-up with uh, Georgia. And so what was unleashed is a denial of service attack, the simplest of all attacks. You just fill up the channels. And when you, that's easy to do. You can inf infect uh, a series of computers that affect other computers, and you just keep transmitting. So in the Georgian situation, what they depended on was not serviceable. Now, there's a kinetic aspect of that, and the, and the Russians rolled in with the appropriate kinetic force and, and uh, carried out the actions that, that they intended. But this is not the first time. It was also uh, uh, done in Estonia uh, before that. Very simple, denial of service. So there hasn't been a nation state, to my knowledge, that has used cyber to achieve military objectives like taking down an air defense system or causing... Um, the failure of some military capability uh, to be successful in, in, a, in a, a conflict. The U.S. military has just stood up uh, in May uh, for the first time a cyber command. And the cyber command will, de will develop capability to be successful when called on to, do, to be successful in an attack mode. It also has the mission of defending uh, things in the U.S. military, camp, post, station, operating forces. The question we haven't addressed yet is when you look at the authorities, the authority for defending the United States is the Department of Homeland Security. Now, let me just note that the Department of Homeland Security has 78 oversight committees. So, so getting the, the right kind of focus on that issue when the, when the capability on one side is under a different set of authorities and the responsibilities on another side, we have a lot of negotiating to do to get us to the right place. Yes, I think we had over here next. I'm William Webster, and I am chair of the Homeland Security Advisory Council, the Department of Homeland Security. <laughs> Admiral or Jim, I think one of the areas that our country knows the least about is something called EMP. Would you discuss for us the nature of that threat and how you think we can best approach dealing with it? Thank you for that question, uh, Judge. For those of you who don't know, uh, a former uh, not only director of FBI but also the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and we go back a long way. Um, and my across-the-street neighbor in D.C. So. <laughs> and he has been asking the EMP question now for 26 yeah. years. But, uh, uh, electromagnetic pulse that's causing a pulse that shorts out your infrastructure. So there, there are methods for causing catastrophic damage, which wouldn't be a cyber penetration of turning this off or filling up a channel. It just, it's just, think of it as a flash, it just turns everything off. And, and so do you want to say anything more about probability, uh, et cetera, uh, et cetera? Just, <laughs> Maybe you would no. want to venture there. I'll so just, so I, I saw it next here and then over on this side of the room. Yeah. Uh, I believe you uh, said that... Don, would you say... Uh, oh, Don Spiro <laughs> is my name. Sorry. Thanks, Jim. Um, I believe that you said, uh, implied that uh, non-state actors are not yet 
terribly sophisticated in this technology. And, and I had the impression that you're saying that the cyber threat is a threat, but it hasn't happened yet. <clears throat> and um, I, there have been a lot of popular press reports that suggest that Al-Qaeda is very sophisticated. Uh, they've done a lot, uh, and that there have been continuous attacks, thousands per day on the Pentagon and other places, that we've lost some very valuable intelligence because of those, and in fact, uh, uh, I, I recall, I could be wrong, that some group took over the, uh, uh, a big computer at Oak Ridge and ran it for a while because it was better than what they had at home. Is, is, are these just factoids? Or no, no, those are all true, and, and it's not thousands of attacks, it's millions. And, and it's not um, small amounts of data, it's terabytes of data. So the intellectual property of those of you who run businesses has probably been, been taken. Uh, so I, I, I'm not attempting to trivialize that part of it. Most speakers on this subject lay out reams and reams of horror stories on exploitation. That's why I keep using the words exploit, attack, and defend. To exploit means you just you copy somebody's material. I'm talking. What I'm trying to describe is attacking with the uh, with the intent to destroy data. That's the part that hasn't happened. Nation states are capable, but they're deterred. The extremist groups have some capability, but it may not be at the catastrophic level yet. But, but can we assume that these are also tests for these other parties oh, yes. to be ready for a big attack if oh, they yes. want to do it? Right. We, uh, the, from a nation state standpoint, they're preparing. And to prepare, you, you reconnoiter, you go look, you test, you probe, you. You leave behind things that would be useful to you at a later point in time. Think of it as the way everybody read the news about the spies, the Russian spies that were arrested here in the yeah. United States, right? Um, if there had ever been a conflict, those were agents in place. So think of a logic bomb as an agent in place. It could be activated if you ever chose to do so. Yes, I think I saw over here and then Bob. Yes, so you, I'm Bob Hurstein. In this very complicated, interconnected world, how do we go about beginning to defend ourselves against another specific challenge? The manufacturer of a microchip somewhere in another part of the world who codes it so that when it goes into, uh, when it gets installed in the United States in five years or six years, they can send a signal and close down our electric grid? That's a very serious problem. Um, there was a point in time, uh, we'll get the timing exactly right, mid-80s time frame, um, and the acronym I think is Symatech, where we were losing, uh, we, we dominated the world in production of microchips, and all of a sudden they moved away. And we had a national policy to regain, uh, regain our, our preeminence. So business and government came together, uh, had an agreement, and we re regained our position. Now, since that time, the production of most computing equipment has moved out of the United States. So uh, another reason that I'm, I keep now being accused in the popular press of hyping the threat is I'm attempting to say there's an issue here that needs to be examined and debated, and we need a policy that would allow us to recapture 
what's the most important to us. And I would say this technology is that important. And to, to add to that, to that answer, part of your Federalist Papers, which I've, I've seen, including this morning, involves uh, extensive public-private partnerships. You know. Public-private yeah. partnership, education. Remember, everybody, no, not everybody here, many people here remember Sputnik. Uh, what was our reaction to Sputnik? Send people to school in the sciences. I myself uh, went to school as a result of the bill that was passed post-Sputnik. So my view is there are a series of things we need to do. It's not just technology. It's education, it's cultural, it's, it's policy, it's international agreements. This is a very serious issue. And if we don't address it, we're going to regret it. We're going to have time for two more questions. One will be Bob here. And would you find somebody on this side and have the microphone to them? Yes. Uh, Bob Rose, sir. So at the end of uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a concern that the uh, nuclear arsenal would have gotten into the hands of terrorist groups. Today, there are nation states that have the capability of, of bringing down uh, or doing significant damage through the internet. What is the likelihood or possibility of nation states that do have these capabilities getting into the hands of rogue nation states or extremist groups and causing significant damage? I think that's a very serious and real concern. Uh, the, the, the point I want to highlight for the, for the audience is the cost of ent entry is relatively low. I mean, th I, how many times have you had a conversation with someone and they say, oh, th those are computers. I don't do computers. My 11-year-old does computers. I mean, uh, how many of you, remember when there were VCRs? How many of you figured out how to program that damn VCR and turn off that blinking light? So. <laughs> Some of us that are a little older don't appreciate this technology from a small group of people with the right focus could achieve this level of damage. So, Bob, your, your question is a good one. Uh, a relatively small group can have uh, a, a disproportionate impact on, on society. Yes, back here. Yes. Uh, my name is Astrid Dörner. I'm a reporter with a German newspaper. Um, what impact did the financial crisis have on the U.S. efforts in cybersecurity? And could you maybe just point out one or two specific steps you would say the U.S. needs to do now to improve the situation? Uh, I think the, uh, the financial cra crisis was sobering because it, it introduced a level of appreciation of what might be possible. And I, and I think the, the flash crash we had back in May, we lost a trillion dollars in 16 minutes. Well, do you, just think about the signific significance of that. Now, for whatever the cause, a trillion dollars in 16 minutes, and our economy is $14 trillion a year, a year, we lost a trillion in 16 minutes. So if someone could interfere with that process to cause that loss of confidence, banking is based on confidence. Economics 101, the money is not there. <laughs> we put it there, and the banks lend it out. And if we all go down to take it out, it's not there. So if, you're, if you don't have the confidence that it's going to work, it isn't. <laughs> so that's the lesson, to me, that's the lesson. And the, the, what we're going to have to do is uh, figure out how to make that enterprise resilient to the point it, that it cannot be attacked successfully. And so in addition to the money is not there, what is the other one thing you want people to remember from your message, the next thing you would like an informed American audience of this sort, international audience, to do about this issue? We, our, our wonderful democracy 
Washington, D.C. will react to one of four things. Fear, money, <laughs> well, the propaganda. No, no, the, first, the, the good thing is ballots. <laughs> the, the, I mean, and not even CIA tam tampers with ballots. And that was a joke. Uh, so the right votes will get the right focus on this. The, the second thing that we'll react to is uh, money. And, and the previous administration, the current administration, looked at this issue and, and agreed to spend a lot of money to work it. Not enough to change the nation yet, however. The, the third thing that we'll res respond to is crisis. Uh, please don't let us have the crisis before we do take some action. The last thing is law. And being a member of the United States military, I observed a debate that went on for six or seven years about joint activities, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps. Every service chief and every service secretary stood up in testimony, sworn testimony, and said to the Congress, if you pass the Goldwater-Nichols bill that requires jointness, it will ruin the United States military make us ineffective. The bill was passed, the President signed it, and we went through Desert Shield, Desert Storm. I was the intel intelligence officer for General Powell, so I got to watch. After the war, they went over to talk about how well they had done. Every service chief under oath said, go water Nichols is the best thing that ever happened in the United States military. <laughs> so if we can get the law right, we can address this problem. But it's gonna take a partnership with the public, it is uh, informed citizens who vote and have an opinion in the White House and the Congress, and I think we can frame it in the right way. On that encouraging note, please join me in thanking Admiral Michael Howard. <laughs>